Columbia Pictures takes you beyond the future to a universe you've never seen before in heavy metal. Now playing at the Cinerama Dome Hollywood and the Cinedome Orange County. Radio Drone. A shadow shall fall across the universe. I am the sum of all Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. With me, as always, is the Canadian Monkey Man. Well, I can't even say that because we have two Canadians on this week, but Peter's here. That's right, babe. And we have a guest Canadian this week because Cecil is still out. The Saskatchewan screamer himself, Brandon Tennold, is here. You uh, you may be the sum of all evils, but voice-wise, I'm afraid you are not Percy Rodriguez, sadly. <laughs> Who is? <laughs> Nobody's. I mean, okay, Orson Welles, maybe. Shadow Stevens, maybe. But Percy Rodriguez is still Percy goddamn Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're going to be talking about the Heavy Metal franchise tonight. But before that, guys, if you want to help out the show, go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item. Item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. And also, if you're going to be looking for heavy metal or some of the other weirdo movies that you might not even realize are part of this franchise, because it kind of is a franchise, you're going to need a VPN. That's where NordVPN comes in. Go to 1201beyond.com backslash VPN, and that'll take you to Nord's site. There you'll be able to get 75% off of a three year plan. That's only $3.79 a month for Nord's protection to encode your data, to protect your data, to get around region locking, all of that. So 1201beyond.com backslash Drome VPN. All that said, Heavy Metal, it's really a guy franchise. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's up for debate. How did you encounter Heavy Metal first? Did you read the magazine and then you stumbled across the movie? Or did you stumble across the movie and then went, oh, this is based on a magazine? Might have seen the magazine a little bit before, like before I saw the movie, but I never actually read it because in my small hometown I grew up in, they always placed them like uh, in the back on the magazine racks by like, you know, with the penthouses and stuff like that. So I never got to read them when I was a little kid. But the movie I actually stumbled upon probably the same way a lot of people did who were too young to have seen it in the theater, which is on late night cable when I was a a teenager. Stayed up late one night and watched it and... I was uh, I was hooked from that point. That at that point I wanted to check out the magazine. How old were you? Because the movie is very much a 13-year-old male power fantasy. Were you right in that area? <laughs> yeah, I think I was about 14 or so when I oh, saw God, it, which is pro- especially, uh, probably especially the probably the den, especially the den story. So I was about 6 or 7 and my 
buddy at that time, my best friend, my my uh, school childhood friend, his mom had a massive movie collection. And anytime we would have a sleepover, we would kind of pick through it and pick random stuff. I mean, this was this was how I saw movies like Predator for the first time, movies like uh, Friday the 13th, Lethal Weapon, that kind of stuff. One of those nights we plucked out heavy metal and neither of us had really any idea what it was. I mean, we were just uh, two two dudes that were like seven, seven to eight years old at the very oldest. I believe it was seven. Uh, we popped it in. We loved it. We thought it was awesome. We loved the music. A, a lot of the music ended up shaping the kind of music I would be into later on in my life. And then I eventually found out about the magazine because my dad had always been a very big international artist kind of comic book fan he's shown me stuff like uh, dylan dog he's introduced me to stuff like mobius which in turn showed me mobius's silver surfer comic which through that i ended up discovering the heavy metal stuff as well because mobius had worked on heavy metal as well and then i found out that a lot of his work was what was inspired for like blade runner and stuff like that so it all kind of snowballed and i ended up getting super into the magazine ended up getting super into the movie at a very early age like i was um already very familiar with both the film and both the the, uh, both the magazine at about 11 to 12 years old well we'll get into the history of the magazine in a minute because that's important to how the movie came about but to Mm -hmm. the movie itself why do you think it works as that 14-year-old boy power fantasy? Is it the copious nudity, the random violence, the kind of, I mean, like I said, it is a power fantasy, so you've got all these guys doing all these awesome things that as a 13-year-old, as a 14-year-old, like, oh, God, I'd love to be thrown into this world and have this huge buff body that somehow is voiced by John Candy, and he's nailing all <laughs> of these women, and you got Harry Canyon just melting people, and then... Of course, badass Tarna just killing everything. Why do you think Heavy Metal works as a guy movie? Because it really is a guy movie, isn't it? There's not a lot of girls that are like, I want to watch Heavy Metal. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you already said it. It hits basically all the buttons that a, you know, a teenage boy could want. It's got copious amounts of nudity. It's got animated violence. It's got some, you know, stoner humor in there with the... (laughs) You know, <laughs> Harold Ramis and Eugene Levy as coke-snorting aliens. <laughs> and also, uh, to kind of touch on something uh, Peter hinted at, for people who criticize heavy metal, a lot of people will say, like, oh, this is nothing more than, you know, just some teenage boys hormone-fueled power fantasy. And the sequence they'll point to as the biggest example of that is the den sequence. Yes. And my rebuttal to that is, yeah, that's literally the entire premise of of that short it's literally a teenage kid's power fantasy he's a he's a skinny teenage nerd he gets transported to another world where he's this big muscular guy with his dork hanging out to quote the movie <laughs> like it's 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 something that both like it almost parodies and indulges in the kind of you know conan the barbarian style uh, pulp fantasy if they had revealed at the end that the lightning strike that hit him earlier had actually just put him in a coma and he was dreaming the whole thing, I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. This seems like something a ner- that nerdy kid would, would dream about. Well, and, and that's basically why so many of the different artists and directors wanted to work on this movie. Well, when I was a teenager drawing pictures, I drew pictures of naked girls with big boobs. Now I'm getting paid to do that. <laughs> and, uh, and also, another thing, you mentioned like... Uh, 
yeah, teenage boys love it because it has, you know, tits and, you know, potty humor and all this stuff. When I first saw it, the actually my favorite sequence was the B-17 sequence. Same, same which, here. Which I, I love doesn't, that have, doesn't have any nudity, doesn't have any silly jokes or anything like that. It's just a well-done atmospheric horror short that just happens to be animated. Yes. And the zombies, in my opinion, those are some of like animated or live action, some of the coolest looking zombies ever. Yeah. And again, a lot of the people who dismiss the movie won't, they won't mention that. Oh, it's just tits. Well, this part doesn't have any tits. Yeah, but, you know, the, the other parts do, so this doesn't count. Like, okay. Also brilliant. Uh, I believe that's, uh, they use Sammy Hagar's heavy metal in that scene when they opened on the plane. No, no, no. Uh, no. Don Felder. Taking a ride Taking a or ride, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was so, like, just the use of the, the guitar tone as it, like, kind of slowly zooms in on the plane and you see, like, machine gun fire and, air, like, airplane fire and stuff, like, going past it, like, it sets such an awesome mood for it, like right from the get-go. And it's the type of music that you wouldn't think would fit with a World War II scene, but it, it does. It does, like really weirdly well. There's a weird thing with the music in this, because when you hear the name heavy metal, you don't think of Don Felder and Blue Oyster <laughs> Cult and well, Fleetwood uh, Mac, Cult, you know? You do. Well, okay, maybe Black Sabbath. We do have, yeah, we do have Dio Sabbath in there. The music style and what the magazine were kind of clashed because people thought this was a heavy metal movie. You're going to have like Headbanging and Iron Maiden and Motley Crue are going to be in it, dude. And it's nothing like Motley that. Motley Crue be in it? Yeah, this would have been too early. In in 81, Blue Oyster Cult was considered heavy metal. Yeah, exactly. Because this was before, this was before like, because Metallica hadn't came out yet and, and Slayer hadn't came out yet. Didn't so, you know, to have those like yeah, in 80, metal... in, in 81 Dio Sabbath, like as far as mainstream, like as far as like the type of bands anybody would know, Dio Sabbath would have been the, the heaviest yeah, stuff you could I, get. I think, like obviously uh... there are, obviously there's some stuff that doesn't fit like Devo, obviously even in 81 wasn't heavy metal and <laughs> no, not <laughs> like there are some that don't fit, but a lot of them do. They were still, they still fit for what was needed for the movie, like for the, the Devo. They, the segments they used them for worked really well. But yeah, there, there were bands that could have been considered heavy metal at the time. We, we had, you know, Venom. Uh, we had Merciful Fate. We had Black Sabbath. And we do have a great, like, Mob Rules by Black Sabbath with Dio in that movie is probably the heaviest of metal metal tracks that's in there, I'd say. Again, another one of the best moments when the uh, barbarians charge the city and then it kicks yes. in. Well, let's go into a little bit of history here. So the magazine is actually a spinoff of National Lampoon. National Lampoon at the time was owned by 21st Century Communications, the same people who owned Weight Watchers, owned National Lampoon. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> so National Lampoon throughout the 70s was the satire magazine. They they were doing things you could never have gotten away with today. Even by the 80s, they they were doing things you could not have gotten away with. They used to have Neil Adams and certain comic book artists. They had comic books in National Lampoon. They had serials and stuff that were very satirical, very scatological, very National Lampoon audience. And they noticed these are going over really, really well. What about a spin-off magazine? Because one of the editors had gotten a copy of the French magazine Metal Her Law, which started a few years earlier. 
he thought these were great. He goes, I don't read French, so I don't know what they are saying, but God, these look fantastic. So they decided they licensed from Metal Her Law, which literally translates to Screaming Metal, which they changed it to <laughs> Heavy Metal for America. The first 10 or so issues were only Americanized reprints of early Metal Her Law stories, so they're very European. They don't feel like what we think of as Heavy Metal when you go and buy the early issues. And then they started adding in more American content. And then in 1978... National Lampoon had made Animal House, which was a giant, giant success. They thought, well, we've got a National Lampoon movie. What about a heavy metal movie? And (laughs) so heavy metal was born. Not all of the segments in the movie are based on stories from the magazine. The Harry Canyons part and Tarna are both originals. So Harry Canyon and Tarna were originals. Everything else was based on something in the comic book, some a lot looser than others. And then Heavy Metal came out, and it didn't do so hot. It it very much became a midnight movie. I mean, it did make twice its budget back, but we all know that that still means it didn't make money. Columbia released it. They were not too happy about it. And it just sort of faded away until in America, I don't know what channel you guys got it on in Canada. In America, it was a Cinemax exclusive. And this was a late night staple on Cinemax. They played it multiple times a month. And for years and years and years, all of us had VHS bootlegs of it because due to the the soundtrack licensing, this thing didn't get an official VHS release until 1996. So it was mm-hmm. all bootlegs from 81 to 96. So that all said with the history, where does heavy metal fall in the sci-fi pantheon? considering it bombed and it was a is this a cult film really oh yeah i'd say so for sure and it as far as like the sci-fi pantheon i'm not sure as far as like western adult animation goes i'd say it's one of the big cornerstones even though it wasn't a super hit just the fact that it made twice its budget back and it was a fair like not giant but it had a for 81 it had a decent budget which you know the fact that it made twice that back is still kind of amazing because as far as western uh r-rated uh animation goes the only guy really doing it consistent consistently before this was ralph bakshi and even then i think the only like big big like really profitable movie he made was fritz the cat kind of it like even like you know like wizards and all those other movies they were also mainly like midnight movie favorites they were very niche yeah so i think even yeah like like you say making twice its budget back was even for the time was probably about best it could hope to do and then maybe over time like with you know video sales or whatever maybe gradually make a profit that way well it became a big midnight movie thing at the time because a lot of the animators say that they would see the movie a year or two later like in 83 84 and the entire audience he said as soon as you opened the door pot smoke would just waft over you (laughs) This became a stoner movie and a midnight movie. So I think the $20.1 million box office it had in 81 is not really fair because it clearly made a lot more money later on, but that's not going to make Columbia happy. Well, no, any movie studio, they want the profits right away. They're not thinking like, well, 30 years from now when it's a cult classic, like they're not, they don't think that way. Well, yeah, that's that's a very corporate kind of mindset. It's not about this will eventually become a cult film. We want this to be a smash hit. 
so I can benefit the studio. This was actually like a gateway to discovering a lot of other stuff because I actually saw this before a lot of Bakshi stuff and before, like, I think I saw this before I got into, you know, the Japanese stuff like Ninja Scroll or movies like that. So this kind of... Yeah, same. Yeah, this kind of opened up the door that animation could be more than just, you know, the Saturday morning cartoons I had seen up until that point. Yeah, like, for me, it was... uh heavy metal and the animated spun HBO show that really showed me like just how adult and violent and heavy like animation could be like it wasn't just the Simpsons and stuff personally to me I can never hear Journey's open arms the same way again that's also another thing where it's like okay maybe it's not a heavy metal track but it's appropriate for the time because it's when it's playing it's just something harry canyon's listening to in his apartment yeah and you're like maybe not in the future but like some some new york italian guy like yeah he's he probably like journey <laughs> he's probably he's probably belted out don't stop believing a karaoke a couple times when he was drunk yeah he's kind of the uh like the sort of bruce willis type well, let, let's talk about the movie itself. So you have the framing sequence with Percy Rodriguez as the amazing Lochnar, and Percy Rodriguez was the absolute perfect voice for that. You've got Harry Canyon, which is, ironically enough, something Blade Runner would steal from, and Rid- I'm not speculating on that. Ridley Scott... Not only um, not only Blade Runner, but like Fifth Element. Fifth Element itself is almost an extended version of the Harry Canyon story. Well, Luke Besson's a notorious plagiarist, but Ridley Scott specifically says that segment was a visual yeah. primer for what he wanted in Blade Runner. He stole, um, he basically, you could either say inspired by or stole, but like that whole futuristic city aesthetic that Blade Runner uses, like that's all Mobius artwork, essentially. The grungy uh, future American city. The the B-17 segment, which you guys pointed out earlier, was based on a, a story called Gremlins, which was about little, this is before the movie Gremlins, obviously, these little Yoda-looking gremlins attacking a plane, which was then obviously reworked into the Loch Nahr and and the zombies. Captain Stern's segment is the one that's almost <laughs> shot for shot, <laughs> word for word, from the Bernie Wrightson original story. Other than the Loch Nahr being why Hanover Fist mutates. He just, that's his power in the comics. So even when I saw the movie at the end, when uh, Stern like pays him off and he changes back, I remember thinking like, so did the Lochnar do that? Or was that Stern's plan the whole time? <laughs> and it's like, and it's obviously cause in the, and it's cause in the original story that was that, that is the case, but they had to fit the Lochnar in somehow. So they kind of, you know, <laughs> Yeah, the the Lochnar makes the dude like Hulk out, whereas yeah, in the in the story, that's kind of he had an ability to do that. Which I gotta say, I love that segment so much, and I feel like the character of Stern had to be the in, the uh, inspiration for Futurama's uh, Zap Brannigan. Yeah, no, because unfortunately, Zap Brannigan is, and I'm I'm quoting here: "What if William Shatner, the actor, were captain of the Enterprise?" No, I don't buy that. It's Stern. Well, I can see a bit of Shatner in there, but I can see some, yeah, some some heavy metal influence too. And also weird that that's Eugene Levy voicing him because you're usually used to Eugene Levy being like a more nerdy sounding guy. Yeah, he's he's kind of plays more of like a bookwormy type, whereas uh, as Stern, like he's 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 kind of got like the jockish sort of Superman voice going, which is really funny. Well, speaking of Eugene Levy, heavy metal has a lot of Second City players in it because these were the oh, also, yeah. these were the National Lampoon players as well. So like you know John Tons Candy of, uh, as a, uh, at tons of SCTV actors and stuff. 
Yes, John Candy as as that brutal cop in the Harry Canyon segment. And then, of course, John yes. Candy as Den in the male power fantasy, which that's based on a comic <laughs> as well. And then you've got Harold Ramis and Eugene Levy snorting Plutonian Nyborg in the So Beautiful, So Dangerous <laughs> segment with John Candy as a horny robot. And... <laughs> best most stonerific moment in that is when they're trying to land the big smile ship in in the space <laughs> station and and sammy hagar is playing and there's the giant opening they're like the size of a pinprick and they still manage to hit the side <laughs> <laughs> of course we you got tarna which was an original creation based off i think it was a chris achilios painting that he had just done for mm-hmm. a cover and then they turned it into that what i like about tarna is if you've watched the behind the scenes a lot of her actions because the way she moves is is weird for animation she was rotoscope they hired an actress yes, you can tell they hired an actress they shot her against a blank wall in black and white because you didn't have green screen at this point on eight millimeter yeah. film and like her getting dressed and her fighting the thugs in when devo is playing in the bar and by the way that's supposed to be devo in the future they're actually the band there <laughs> there are little things that she does as an actress that an animator wouldn't have thought like when she's getting dressed at one point her hair falls in front of her eye and the way she flicks it around that's something only a real person would do i don't think an animator would have thought to add the hair flick out of my eye thing and that gives her yeah. a weird movement compared to the rest of the movie which is more or less there's some other rotoscoping like the b-17 plane is actually a model that they were shooting fireworks at for the explosions that they animated over so there is more rotoscoping in the movie well there's also the the car in space at the very beginning of the movie like that's yes. very clearly that's like a rotoscoped uh, photograph kind of animation style, which really does add a, a uniqueness to the movie. Like there's a lot of really stuff that we weren't really seeing at the time. And it was really cool to see all this uh, experimentation going on. The animation style is consistent in that, you know, it's all 2D as opposed to the sequel that we'll get to later. But there's still you still have some variation in style, like the Tarna sequence is different from like the Captain Stern sequence where, every, you know, the designs are more exaggerated and cartoony. But they but both of them fit within the style of the movie and, you know, the tone of the of those particular stories. And also, like, when she's flying her bird, when she's still got the cloak on, that was all a giant model that they built that she's flying over. That's why it gets that really weird look. Seems almost unnatural, because they're just flying a remote control camera over a giant <laughs> model. It also it also adds to the uh, the trippiness of the movie as well, I think. Oh, it does, for sure. The movie is a fantastic film. I mean, is there, are there animation mistakes? Yes. Is it puerile? Yes. Is it insulting to your intelligence at times? Yes. But Heavy Metal is a fantastic movie. Maybe if I hadn't grown up with it. Because I've seen a lot of people who are now in their 20s who see Heavy Metal for the first time and they just don't get it. I think you needed to grow up with Heavy Metal. I was also reading the magazine regularly because at least to me, my bookstore here, Book World, they considered Heavy Metal a comic book. And it was always in the Mm. comic book section. I've been buying Heavy Metal for years before I legally should have been able to buy Heavy Metal magazine. 
So I've been reading it all that time. But then, like I said, mm-hmm. Heavy Metal became this, it became this sort of cult thing. And then eventually it got a lot of attention when it, when it came out on VHS in 1996 and then on Laserdisc later that year. DVD doesn't exist yet, but then when it would come out on that. For years, I remember all the way back from 1995, Kevin Eastman, co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, he bought Heavy Metal in 1992 after he sold all of his rights in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle franchise bought Tundra Publishing, which cost him $14 million in three years, because that didn't work. So he took his buyout from Tundra and bought Heavy Metal with it. Ever since 1995, he'd been talking about making a sequel, and it was going to be based off one of the stories, Fock 2. Eventually, that came as Heavy Metal 2000, and obviously the year 2000, and this film was (laughs) not worth the goddamn wait. Probably in the minority for this, but I have always enjoyed Heavy Metal Fock or Fact 2. I know it's not as good as the first movie. I know it does have some absolutely piss poor cg in it julia strain was one of the voices in it right like the main chick yeah julia strain who was married to she was married to kevin eastman the owner of heavy metal at the time so it was kind of cool to see one of the sort of large basis for the uh magazine covers as one of the main characters that was um I, i dug that um i really dig michael ironside voicing the villain in the character that basically gets uh turned into what he is by like a Lochnar kind of thing. I, I think it actually is the Lochnar. And he looks the way he looks the way that he did as uh General Katana in Highlander 2, which I thought was really fun. Like he had the same sort of widow's peak uh long hair kind of look to him. And as always, like I feel like Michael Ironside is just always really, really entertaining, whether he's doing just a voice or whether he's uh doing it as a performance. The animation style, uh, I think we were were talking about this the other day where it looked a bit more like Batman the Animated Series as opposed to the way the first movie looked. And I forgive that because it, it is a little more modern, like it was the... You know, the late 90s, early 2000s, as opposed to 80s animation, which really had its own aesthetic, basically, in in general, whether it was uh, American stuff or Japanese stuff. Because I remember as a kid when I would watch heavy metal and something like Fist of the North Star back to back, the animation styles to me looked very similar, just the way everything looked the way the frame rate was the way the pencil art was like it was uh the difference between japan and america but yet both kind of in a way look like each other they both look a bit like heavy metal so you're obviously going to have a different animation style for the 2000 film and maybe it wasn't as heavy metal as it could have been but i do feel like they still did a good job with it the only thing to me that's like super wonky is the the cg was awful like even the stuff in the in the metal herlan show had better cg than uh than heavy metal 2000 did Personally, I would have preferred if a heavy metal sequel, again, had been another anthology just for the variety like the first one. Yeah, even uh, even. OK, we'll take it that it's, you know, all one story. Like you were saying with the animation, I think they added the CG because, you know, it was the year 2000 and they probably felt like they had to to make it modern. Mm-hmm. But the CG and the 2D animation they went with does not blend together at all no like it's really really idle really jarring it hurts the uh it hurts the movie really badly um it should have either been it should have been entirely 2d or very sparing with the cg like just use it for ships every now and then maybe but the fact that they use it as much as they did i think just makes it so so obvious to how bad 
the CG technology was for the film, or at least the CG budget, as opposed to the animation. Because the animation, in my opinion, is really well done. It's just the CG that looks so terrible in comparison, which is why it's like so easy to see how bad it was, because the CG really, really was bad. When Billy Idol goes to his full CG form, it literally looks like somebody spent an hour on that on their laptop. It's not good. You're looking at footage from the uh, PlayStation 1 game adaptation of the movie. Also, another thing I wanted to say is, uh, like I was saying earlier, you know, a lot of people dismiss the first movie as, oh, it's just, it's juvenile, it's sexist, it's blah, blah, blah. But there's, you know, you can point to, like, the B-17 sequence doesn't have any elements like that. And there's also parts, like, during the Tarna sequence when, you know, she's she's flying and you got uh, Elmer Bernstein's music playing. Like, there's some genuinely, like, artistic, beautiful moments in that movie oh, absolutely. in the first one whereas with the second one if you say this is just some teenage boys hormone power fantasy eh, that's a lot more true of the, the second movie is like if you were to ask me is infinitely sleazier than the first film I, I actually think it's not a teenage boys power fantasy it's Kevin Eastman's power fantasy he casts <laughs> his wife as a warrior woman and I don't know if you guys know what Kevin Eastman looked like at the time he looks exactly like her sidekick in that oh, so God. it's 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 him and his wife going on an adventure to save the universe. This is Kevin Eastman's power fantasy this time. Yeah, but it was also him just kind of, in a way, it's uh, not to get sentimental, but in a way, it's kind of cute. Like, he's just trying to he's just trying to give big ups to his wife, I guess. Julie Strain has never been a strong actress, but when she can't act with her face at all, she's terrible. Her voice acting in this is terrible. I mean, you got Michael Ironside. Billy Idol does a fine job. Julie Strain is hard to listen to in this. She sounds so bored in this movie. Well, she's well, definitely not a, a voice actress or really... I mean, her, her experience is with, like, Andy Sidaris films and stuff. You were saying when she can't act with her face. I never thought of Julie Strain as someone who acts with her face. I she think you gotta go. Her, uh, I think you gotta go a little lower to. Yeah. See her okay, her uh, body. How's that? Chest, chest level, chest level acting. I was looking forward to Heavy Metal 2000 because, like I said, I've been reading about it in the magazine forever, and finally, when it came out. I didn't like the Batman the Animated Series animation. That works for Batman the Animated Series. That doesn't work for heavy metal. And then the god-awful CG, the decision to make it one story was just a bad decision because this story does not have enough story for 90 minutes of screen mm. time. This was just a disaster of a film. It barely came out. It didn't make any money. The magazine at this point was in the toilet. The lowest sales it ever had were right around this time kevin eastman when he was actively editing the magazine it did not go over well i remember that the sales were really low in the early 2000s and the movie just kind of poof that was it it was a thing <laughs> that existed and then years later in 2012 we got the metal her law chronicles which is, is it her her lot you're you're saying it very ha 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 is it meant to be pronounced like that? I've always heard it pronounced her law. I've I've her always law. heard that that the NT oh, is silent. I've always heard I metal feel her like law. Such feel like such an asshole pronouncing it like that. But so in 2012, just out of nowhere, 
it was announced that this Metal Her Law Chronicles would be happening. And it was a French-Belgian co-production, so this was not made for American TV, although they <laughs> did know that this was going to eventually air on American TV. Metal Her Law is a big deal over in Europe, but Heavy Metal, the magazine, is a big deal everywhere else. So they right. knew this was eventually going to land on American shores. So almost every episode has an American star in it. These were all shot, like I said, for European TV. They were all made by Guilemi Luberno. L- Luberno. I'm probably mispronouncing that. He wrote and directed Luberno. Every... There you Luberno. go. <laughs> L- Lubruno. He wrote and directed every single episode, all 12 episodes of this. And this was a passion project for him. All mm. these stories are based on something from either a Metal Her Law issue or a Heavy Metal issue. So that's yes. how you have some two episodes that are based on stories written by Alejandro Jadorowski because, of course, because he used to write for <laughs> Metal Her Law back in the day. Yeah. What, what their plan was, we're going to get an American star or two to come over and these will be popular. That's not what happened. Now, I can't find mm. budget numbers for this series. When you watch the behind the scenes, these have full crews. They have tons of makeup people. I mean, regular makeup people, special effects makeup. You've got lighting everywhere. They've got the top of the line in 2012 equipment for sound, the cameras. They've got crew people all over. You've got gaffers. I don't know how this show has all this budget for all this crew and this thing looks worse than an average YouTube video. This I, I show, don't agree with you. This um, show I looks horrible. It, it looks cheap in some instances, but I don't think it looks as bad as you say it does. Uh, after the week of marathoning the episodes and, and getting a look at it, I, I mean, it looks like it's a, a lower budget and mod, modest budget kind of thing. I don't think it's that bad. I disagree with you. I think a lot of this was shot on a green screen. Digital heard it because, especially in the first episode, King's Crown, they are clearly using painted cardboard swords, painted cardboard shields. If this was shot on 35, <laughs> that would have all been hidden. The HD gives away the low budget instantly. Everything... But you're telling me that you weren't enjoying, like, Scott Atkins and Michael Jai White just being awesome? No, because they weren't being awesome. They were, though. They were great. There was some, like, really nice choreography there, and them kind of just showing their stuff. Here's the other thing. So there are 12 episodes, and for some reason... They decided, because this is an anthology series, with the exception of the final 12th episode, these are pure anthology. They could take place in any order. They decided to put, decided to front load the worst episodes first. And I have no idea why they decided to do this, because by the time the third episode aired, they were only getting 60,000 viewers an episode, which is the equivalent of absolutely no one is watching this show. They bled. <laughs> five-sixths of their audience off in three weeks because wow. for some reason they decided, hey, all the decent episodes, we're going to air those at the end of the series because we don't know how TV works. They, I don't know if they meant to do that. I think they were just going by what they shot and released. I don't think they realized that they were the worst episodes. Now, me personally, I pretty much enjoyed it overall. I do know there was definitely some budgetary limitations, but I also at the same time thought it was really fun to see a lot of my favorite sort of indie actors doing heavy metal style, metal her law style segments that were based on all these other different little stories and stuff. Like I really got a kick out of seeing Scott Atkins, Michael Jai White, uh, the dude that played Spike 
in Buffy, uh, seeing Michael Bean in like a Western style episode. I, I enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed it for what it was. I, I, I had never seen it when it came out. Like this was my first time watching it, just getting prepared for this episode. And I have to say, I I really dug it. And there's going to be some episodes that I will definitely revisit in the future. Biggest thing that hurt it for me from a budgetary standpoint is that there is some very obvious screening work in this series. And I get it like, OK, it's European. It's not going to have the budget of an American show, but. We're all familiar with a lot of, you know, European exploitation movies from the past. Yeah. And we know that there's <laughs> plenty of plenty of real locations you can use if you want to make a dystopian looking future. Like you don't have to screen everything. Well, yeah, just go to go to Bulgaria and pretend it's like the post-apocalypse because it basically is. Yeah, exactly. So that was <laughs> one thing that, yeah, that was one thing that could have been done a little bit better. Like you said, yeah, the I the two episodes I liked the least were the first two. Like that bomb shelter one, I saw the twist coming like a mile away. I, I yeah, that one any, was And kinda, I think anyone would. I will admit the novelty of that one was seeing Spike, yeah. but it was pretty dull. Like it was a pretty yeah. dull episode. And there's, it, there's, I thought there were moments that sort of captured the heavy metal feel here and there. Like, I didn't think it was a complete failure. It probably, again, it would have been, probably would have been better if it had more of a budget. But another thing that I kind of felt while watching this is that each episode is like roughly 25-ish minutes long. This, it might have been better if this had been like a streaming series where they could vary the length a bit more. Because mm. there were some stories that felt too stretched out but there were a couple other stories where i felt like okay that wrapped up a little too quick i would have liked some more time if this if this could uh if this could have breathed a little bit more the one i'm thinking of for that brandon would be three on a match the one with dominic pinion as the engineer on the exploded spacecraft that mm. entire first six minutes of the eye-patched wearing snake plissken chick captain raping all of her male crew literally has nothing to do with the story at all and the story doesn't even start <laughs> until the six freaking minute mark does it it's it it felt like a way it felt like a way to get some uh, heavy metal style nudity in there except it doesn't have the actual nudity because the cap the eye-patch captain's got her bra on when she's getting so I don't know what the <laughs> I guess they thought that would be enough or I don't know what TV standards for in are in France I'm uh, assuming you could show nipples on there. There were some episodes where I felt like, okay, this could have been 15 minutes instead of 25. And there were a couple where it's like, okay, this probably should have been 35 minutes instead of 25. So it would have probably would have been better if they could. Yeah. Like again, like in the movie, like the, in the first movie, the Tarna sequence is way longer than the B-17 sequence. And if the B-17 sequence had been had been as long as the Tarna sequence, it would have felt stretched out. And if the Tarna sequence had been that short, it would have felt too short. Like, it's, you need to kind of vary the length of the stories a little bit, I think. I think part of the biggest problem when this show came to America was Americans don't know what Metal Her Law is. If they had renamed this the Heavy Metal Chronicles, this would have done better. Because in America, also... Nobody watched this show when it aired on the Sci-Fi Channel because I think that's a solid point. It would have made a lot more sense to call this the Heavy Metal Chronicles. Exactly, because in America, I mean it makes sense in Europe, it's called Metal Her Law Chronicles because that's what they know it as. In America, a lot of people after it aired was like, "Oh, that was Heavy Metal the series?" Because <laughs> I mean, even in the behind the scenes, they're talking to Scott Atkins and Michael Jai White and Rudger Hauer and stuff. All of them are like, "Oh, I grew up reading Heavy Metal or I, you know, loved 
heavy metal. They all kept referring to it as heavy metal. Yes, because that's what that's the version of it that they grew up with. So calling it Metal Her Law Chronicles in America, I think, was the death spiral of it. I mean, it, it was so bad, Sci-Fi Channel literally just burned off all 12 episodes in two days. It was, mm. we're just doing a marathon, nobody's watching this, we're done. And it's just not that well remembered. But then again, we need to talk about the unofficial heavy metal movies, because there are more, <laughs> technically. So one of them is one that has to be backdoored into this. So Barbarella is unofficially a heavy metal movie, even though Barbarella came out nine years before Heavy Metal the movie, or before Heavy Metal the magazine, I mean. While Barbarella obviously didn't appear in Metal Her Law or Heavy Metal Issues, the sequels in print to Barbarella were printed in Heavy Metal. So am I being too picky saying Barbarella is backdoored in as a heavy metal film? I do think it counts because it did eventually end up in the magazine. The style of Barbarella, like it was, you know, it was based on a, on a European comic and it does have that very European style to it. It's got more, you know, it's tame compared to the actual movie, but from 1968, it's got more titillation than a typical American sci-fi movie at the time would have. It does fit the uh, heavy metal aesthetic like a, as a 60s version of it, at least. Oh, absolutely. Heavy Metal in the 80s, they would do adaptations of some big movies. They did an adaptation of Alien that they put out as a special, an adaptation of 1941. I'm not counting those. Just stuff that was in the actual Heavy Metal magazine, which I think makes Outland, the Peter Himes movie, an unofficial Heavy Metal movie because Jim Steranko serialized that entire adaptation in Heavy Metal. So some mm. people have said I'm stretching to say that, but no, it appeared in heavy metal at the same time it was coming out as a, as a movie. I consider Outland an unofficial heavy metal movie. Stylistically, it might not fix. It's a lot more serious than what you'd think of for a heavy metal film, but screw it. Oh, Out, yeah. Outland is a heavy metal film. In technicality, yeah, it is. Um, if you do look at the, uh, and I've looked it up in, in terms of lists of movie adaptations of stuff that is linked to heavy metal, like it is considered by a lot of people to be a heavy metal film, even though it is very grounded. Like it's, it's a grounded science fiction film it's also a science fiction film that says physics we know no physics in this movie <laughs> and also the ma the magazine would have stories that were more serious and more yeah. straight laced in them so it, you know that's true that's actually true and then the other one is i consider space hunter adventures in the forbidden zone an unofficial heavy metal movie one it was serialized for a while in the comic but also you have the same producers as the heavy metal movie some of the same voices like harold ramus is has got a voice in the movie in the movie he's the the calm guy at the beginning you've got elmer bernstein's score now i'm not trying to insult elmer bernstein but when you look at his scores for heavy metal space hunter ghostbusters slipstream the man plagiarizes himself a lot Basically, the score to Space Hunter is very similar to the score from Heavy Metal. And you just tell me stylistically, this doesn't feel like a live action segment from the Heavy Metal movie. Yeah, it does have the, uh, both in the design and the tone of it, it does have that grungy but still outrageous tone that the, the both the magazine and the movie was known for and the uh, i'm gonna say this even though it's not a european movie a lot of the design work in it like the the spaceship you see at the beginning or those weird spacesuits the women have like they have a very for lack of a better term european look to them like I, something you see I'll in actually, a european comic 
I'll actually narrow that down. They have a kind of a Mobius sort of look to them, don't they? Yeah, yes, yeah, very much. And obviously there's there's the influence of a few other things that like you can see, you know, the there's a bit of a Mad Max uh, Road Warrior influence in some of the designs. But other things like, again, Michael Ironside, which I guess is another sort of tie in with the sequel. Overdog, he he has very much has the look of like a villain you'd see in the comic. Oh, definitely. And especially his whole uh, motive of wanting like young women and stuff like that's very exploitative, very heavy metal. Uh, I think the style of the sort of anti-hero dude is great um, with his little uh, ragtag tag along Molly Ringwald sidekick, uh, the sort of post-apocalyptic look of it, the sort of cyberpunk feel of it, the the ships, the weird creatures. Ironside, of course, is Overdog, a great villain. I do think Space Hunter is extremely indicative of like what heavy metal live action things should be. Like I, I feel like they should have gone and ripped off a lot more of that for the Metal Hurlaw show because there are some great things to work with there. The weird, like, mermaid Amazonian I was going to say, those, Ama- those Amazon women from the water are straight yes. out of a freaking heavy metal cover, aren't they? Yeah, and not only that, but the dialogue where they're like, uh, what do they say, like, if we if we breed with him, we'll kill him or something, and he's just, like, standing there and goes, I'll take that bet. <laughs> Yeah, the one the one difference that the the only thing that could have made this more of a heavy metal type movie is if it was rated R instead of PG. If in an actual heavy metal movie when he says I'll take that bet, an R-rated movie he actually would have taken the bet. He actually yes. a heavy metal story he actually would have taken that as opposed to leaving right away. He he would have actually fucked a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> but so th- that's why I'm considering Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone an unofficial heavy metal movie the same as Outland and Barbarella. For years now, and this was even before the Metal Her Law Chronicles series, they've been trying to make a remake of heavy metal. Different mm. companies get the rights. David Fincher in 2011 had the rights, and he wanted to hire big-name Hollywood directors each to direct an animated segment, and they were going to do it all in CG, and then that never happened, and currently Robert Rodriguez has the rights and he wants to do it all as old lion animation but for some reason he just cannot find the money for it or the time Mm. do you think heavy metal should be remade because they keep calling it a remake they don't they don't say we're gonna make another heavy metal anthology movie they keep saying we're doing a remake of 1981's heavy metal i think that's a bad idea i think you should just do another one and don't call it a remake. Don't try and redo the Lochnar. Because for one thing, I don't know who you'd get today, but he's not going to be po- Percy Rodriguez. I don't know who <laughs> could possibly do that voice today. I, I 100% agree. I would much rather just see another heavy metal movie, be it a sequel or just like taking other stories that weren't made and, you know, retooling your own ideas for stories, getting getting directors to be part of it. I definitely do like that idea of making it kind of a uh, Tales from the Crypt, Masters of Horror kind of thing where you get these like other prophilic directors and you, you put them in a you put them in a writing room, you get them to, to come up with their own kind of stories that are like heavy metal styled. And some of them are adaptations of stories that have showed up in the magazines. Like, I think it would be really interesting to see stuff that say like John Carpenter could come up with, maybe James Cameron, maybe a couple other guys of of that sort of ilk instead of just doing a straight up remake and doing the Lochnar, which is like, you know what, that was that was its time. That's what was driving that 
particular heavy metal movie, we don't necessarily need to have another Lochnar centered story because we already had that with the original heavy metal. We had that with heavy metal 2000. That's kind of what infects the Ironside character. So I would much rather just see another heavy metal movie. Don't, don't try to remake it. Don't try to recapture the lightning that was already captured in a bottle. Just kind of do, I would much rather them just kind of do their own thing with all these different filmmakers and directors coming together and just like spitballing ideas and doing another like fun anthology thing, whether it be live action, whether it be animation. I just, I just want to see them have, have fun with it instead of trying to top what was already perfect in my view with the original heavy metal. Like why try to top it? Why try to remake it when you can just go, just go try to have fun with it. Just try to do your own thing. And that, that and all, all accounts and purposes is what ends up being perfect recipe for a cult film. It's not trying to outdo something that already exists. But could you even do heavy metal today with the whole 14-year-old teenage power fantasy, all of the boobs, all of the racial stuff, all of the insults? In today's SJW culture, could you even make a heavy metal movie in the style of the first film? An R-rated animated sci-fi movie is probably not going to fly in 2020. If it did come out, it's probably not going to be profitable. Uh, you mentioned uh, David Fincher. I think he produced that Netflix series, uh, Love, Death, and Robots, which was a heavy metal-ish style anthology. Some just of didn't those have episodes very much, yes. I think, honestly, if they were to... If you're going to use the heavy metal brand again, like if you get that into, if you're able to adapt that, I don't think a movie is the way to go. They should do it as a streaming series. One, because it would be more likely to actually get made and probably be seen by people that way. And that way you could, you could vary the length. Some could be short, some could be longer. You could get different people to like different directors to work on different episodes. You could vary the animation style. You could adapt stories from, from the magazine and maybe throw a few originals in there. You wouldn't have to worry about a framing story so they can throw the Lochnar thing out again. I think if they were to do an adaptation of the magazine today, I think that's the way to go. Cause like I said, I just, I don't see a theatrical based movie flying in 2020. I don't see any major studio greenlighting it. The only way the only way a movie could get made again now is if it's like a low budget direct to DVD thing, which I wouldn't I prefer if they didn't do that. Direct to DVD or direct to stream like Yeah, uh, and again, like and if you are going to go direct to stream, like do a series. Don't do a yeah. movie, do it in a whole series. Just do a series, do it on, uh, I think, Shudder would probably be a good idea. What about this for an idea? Do you think, even though Metal Her Law Chronicles did not work, if someone like Robert Rodriguez tried to make a live-action heavy metal series, do you think that could work? Instead of animation, could someone, because like I said, I believe Rodriguez still owns the rights to it, which would obviously put it on El Rey if, if he did it. Do you think, in theory... A heavy metal live action series can work. It was just that Metal Her Law didn't work. I think aesthetically, Rodriguez could definitely pull it off. Like, I think if you were to get somebody currently that's making stuff, I think he does have a style that would complement it really well. Yeah, if you 
if he did like sort of like a variation of what he did with Sin City, where he heavily stylizes it, it's almost basically like a less obvious version of the rotoscoping kind of where you're animating over people that could kind of that could kind of work personally i'd still prefer it to be animated because then you could again you could go for like in the captain stern sequence where it's everything's more exaggerated and cartoony which you couldn't really get in live action but if you were to do it in live action i think that would be the best way yeah i think heavy metal as a brand right now they're in a weird flux as a brand they just got new owners because there was a big thing half of their staff walked out over creative control issues and there was some behind the scenes shenanigans some sexual uh mis misgivings shenanigans going on so they recently have had a, a almost complete turnover of the editorial staff and the writing staff i'm not a hundred percent sure i'm on board with the new direction they're going because they were just bought by a company who as part of their mission statement says they are to bring synergy between pop culture and comics their whole thing and they've been doing this a lot lately is dealing with rock bands in heavy metal that hey we're gonna take a song from motley Crue and make that into a story a song from ministry make that into a story a song from iron maiden make that into a story in theory that's all good so far, I've not been impressed with how that's happened. They seem to be really trying to synergize with the rock angle and music and the magazine. I'm not so sure I'm on board with that direction for the magazine right now. Anytime anytime a company uses the word synergy, some real red flags go up for me. Yeah. I don't know what it is about definitely. that word, but yeah. Well, that and word the... uh, always definitely sets alarms off in my head. The people who currently own Heavy Metal, their previous company was, they had a music promotion company. So I think right. they think we've already got the in, we know Motley Crue's manager, we know Iron Maiden's manager, we know Ministry's manager, we know King Diamond's manager. So I think they and think all this of is these, an easy uh, way. And all of those artists, like, they would fit Heavy Metal quite well. I'm not sure where the current version is. They have said they want to expand into other media, so I don't know if they're going to make a movie. I don't know if Rodriguez still has the rights, but I hope heavy metal progresses in the future. I've Having a story of mine in heavy metal would... Heavy metal and 2000 are my deathbed because mm. I've got comic stories that I've written in other comics and magazines. I need to get into heavy metal and I need to get into 2000 AD. So no matter what I'm bitching about with heavy metal currently, I'd still love to write for them, regardless. What we grew up as, uh, regardless of the difference in ages, like we all, all three of us, and Cecil, though he's not joining us for this episode because of the uh, personal stuff in his life right now, I feel like he would definitely agree. I'm sure he had also seen heavy metal from a very early age, much like the three of us have seen. So it's like, it's it's almost it would almost be like a badge of honor to get to contribute a story to something like 2000 AD and to something like the heavy metal publication. Do you think it works to just reach out to the male audience? Because since, like I said, heavy metal is such a male thing. Is it smart to go for the uh, the male demographic? Well, nobody I don't think anybody would argue that like chick flicks shouldn't exist. Like, yeah, this is something that's going for a specific audience. And, you know. Yeah. If they come out for it, then yeah, we'll make them. Like, so why not? Why not have an unapologetically dude show slash movie slash whatever? Yeah, exactly. A, a, a duty oriented macho titty titty bitches violence gore science fiction kind of thing. It's like there's audiences for everything. Like if exactly as you said, if we're making chick flick kind of stuff and 
female oriented kind of stuff like why can't we make something that's also like super super macho super sleazy like make whatever you want to make whether it's going to be super macho or super girly or whatever just just do it do it unapologetically because there are going to be people that enjoy it and you're going to be surprised by who and how many people do end up enjoying it with heavy metals legacy out there do you think that this film is going to become more or less accepted as time goes on? Because like I said, I've seen a lot of younger people who just totally are not digging this film, whereas people like us are like, you people need to learn how to have fun. As far as like universally accepted, I don't know. I don't think it's I don't think it's that type of movie. I think it is like one of the ultimate midnight movies. And the things about those types of movies is that even if it never truly captures a mainstream audience, people are going to continue to discover it like, you know, years from now. Like I said, I was born like after this movie was in theaters and I still discovered it like way after it had came out. Yeah, same. And I think and I don't, you know, hardly think I'm going to be the last one. I think uh, what Brandon said is on the money. It's never going to be widely accepted. It's always going to be more of a down-the-line cult kind of film. But I do think that everybody is always going to discover it because someone's always going to mention it. I mean, just uh, some years ago, South Park did a parody of it. So it's like that probably introduced a whole new generation to it. And I think it's going to keep snowballing that way again and again. Like, we're... We're doing an episode on it now, and there could be listeners that are fans of our show that could be, you know, 16, 17, maybe a bit younger that don't even know what heavy metal is, possibly. Like, there's always, uh, it's entirely possible that something like that can happen, and they're being introduced to it for the first time, or they'll watch somebody's YouTube video on it, or they'll see it get mentioned in a TV show, as I said, like with South Park. So I do think over the years, it's just going to keep snowballing, because I first saw it in the mid-ish uh, 90s when I was very young. That's how I discovered it. This was well after it had been in theaters in 1980. So I discovered it. My buddy discovered it. A, a ton of other people through, I'm sure, video stores and through it being referenced in shows, in uh, podcasts, in YouTube videos. I, I do think that whether whether it becomes a and it never will be. It'll never be a widely accepted, widely adored blockbuster thing. But it will always be uh, lovingly cult. Every generation, I think, are going to discover it for themselves and find something that they like in it. And I think that's what makes heavy metal so special. So on that note, where can people find the Brandon Tenold probably going back and watching heavy metal tonight and then burning his copy of heavy metal 2000? No, I, I, I torrented that shit. I didn't, I didn't buy that one again. Uh, you can find me on YouTube. Just search my name, Brandon Tenold. I should be the first guy to come up. As far as I know, I am the only Brandon Tenold on that site as of right now. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Brandon Tenold and on Facebook at official Brandon Tenold. And where can we find Peter unapologetically <laughs> masturbating to Heavy Metal 2000? What can yeah, I yeah, say? Yeah, but 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 he'll be <laughs> masturbating to Michael Ironside, not Julie. That's Strain. right. That's right. I think we we do know who the uh, real sexual icon is of of Heavy Metal 2000, and it's not uh, Julia Strain. You can find me just adoring heavy metal in general. I just think it's such a great property, and I think it's such a fantastic example of blending science fiction, exploitation, horror comedy lots of just just great stuff a general genre uh comic book for comic fans for artist fans that introduces you to european artists like fantastic dudes like mobius uh you can find me just totally 
getting my nuts off gushing about that shit on the Twitteris at uh, Cinematica, Facebook, the Cinematicus, YouTube, the Cinematicus, of course, 1201beyond.com with other fine programming. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. Contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. We have a Patreon as well if you go and look us up. Also, remember the Nord Code and Adam and Eve. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.